Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, September 11th, 2020. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, since we're recording this on September 11th, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the economic effects of the terror attack and any implications we can get from that for the pandemic that we're suffering from. Because um, as you know, right after the terror attacks on September 11th, there were some very pessimistic forecasts. People said, oh, it'll be years before people feel safe flying again. Uh, people won't want to go to sports stadiums or theme parks because they could be the targets of attacks. As it turned out, things worked out better uh, than people had expected, and people went back to their sort of normal ways of life quicker than, than a lot of people had thought. Are there any implications for the situation we're in today? I think there are, you know, 9-11 always will be in my mind because I, I worked in the White House at the time. And right after there were immediate economic discussions about airlines, about tourism, about consumers' willingness to go out and spend and travel. Uh, there were certainly stories that New York would never come back. New York, of course, was an epicenter of the attacks. Uh, none of that turned out to be true. And as, as we go forward to the pandemic today, you know, one hears some of the same things. Obviously, we have dislocations in the economy right now, and they're very severe. And a lot of prognostications about what's going to happen to cities like New York. I think, though, the classic economist's answer of yes and no may be right here. That No, I, I don't think these are going to be permanent effects necessarily any more than they were 9-11. But I do think there may be more to it this time than 9-11. There were a lot of underlying trends in the economy before COVID-19 that have affected real estate, that have affected consumption patterns, how people shop, and so on. And those are just getting accelerated. So while people may be a little too pessimistic, I'm, I think some of that logic may have something to it this time. That brings us to another question that um, is related to optimism, pessimism, and that I know some students are puzzled by. And that is that the stock market seems to be doing very well. I think um, as of this morning, the S&P 500 is, is up for the year. Dow Jones Industrials is up for the year. But the overall economy doesn't seem to be doing as well. Um, we've seen big declines in real GDP and employment some bounce back, but still some people see kind of a disconnect between the strength of the stock market during a time when we've been going through this very deep recession. So how do we resolve that seeming contradiction? It, it is certainly a time where people are looking at their 401k statements or statements of things they've been able to save. It looks better than what they're hearing about in the economy. And the question is, why is that? I think a lot of people outside of economics say, well, the stock market's just crazy or it's getting it wrong. I don't know, maybe because I'm an economist, I'm not sure that's true. I, th I think it's actually a, a teaching moment. So here's how I think about it. You know, in, in the book, we talk a lot about stock prices as being the present discounted value of future dividends. And most of the value of an asset like a stock is in the future. And so if we think the pandemic doesn't have permanent effects on the economy, 
While there may be an impairment in the short run earning potentials of big companies, uh, maybe not in the long run. So that would be point one. Point two, remember there's a discount rate. And the question is, what's the right discount rate? And if we're in an environment where the Federal Reserve through its own policies has pushed down both risk premia and interest rates, discount factors on stocks are going to be less. And of course, the Fed and public policy itself have sent the signal that the big tail risk of the economy falling off a literal cliff likely isn't going to happen. And stock markets do price tail risk. So if you look at it, whether it's the tail risk, the discount factors, or the future cash flows of companies, I'm not sure that the market's crazy at all especially since some of the bigger stocks are tech companies that may also have market power. So could the stock market be wrong? Of course it could, but could it be right and just not like the economy? That seems more likely. Those are all good points. I think that the idea that stocks already have in them, that the price of stocks already have in them, pretty much everything that's known about those companies is a concept some students struggle with. Because I, I tell them in class that if you happen to listen to cable business news or a podcast on financial matters, sometimes they'll give a story about how wonderful Tesla is or Apple or, or some other company and say, well, you really should buy this stock because I've got great management, the product's great, and so on. But as economists, we're skeptical of that advice because if the person is saying it on a podcast or on a cable news interview, everybody on Wall Street already knows that. And as a result, they've already bought Tesla or Apple up to the point where going forward, it's no more likely to do well as an investment than it is um, to do poorly. And it's really only new information that tends to cause stock prices to change. And one of the things that we've seen is a lot of volatility on the market, in part because, as you mentioned, people are trying to get a gauge on how the economy is gonna be going forward. So we get good news on vaccines and people are optimistic that the end of these uh, problems uh, is close at hand and then maybe we hear that a vaccine trial has been stopped and people think, uh-oh, you know, maybe it'll be well into next year before uh, we get a widely used vaccine. And as a result, you see more volatility in the stock market um, than you typically do. The other thing, as you mentioned, is the, the fact that it's really only large firms that can sell stock on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. Sometimes we forget that there's really just a few thousand firms that can do that. And the other millions of firms in the economy can't raise money by selling stock. They have to take bank loans or plow whatever profits they make back into the company. And we know that larger firms have been doing better than smaller firms, in part because the products that they're, that they're selling, uh, a lot of smaller firms are in retail. It's been badly hurt. And I, I saw a little story in the Wall Street Journal a day or two ago that it was very interesting because it, 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 it cast some light on a part of the economy we don't often think about, and that was firms that are suppliers to other firms. So you know, maybe you're making clothing and you're selling it to boutiques, or you're making toys and you're selling it to, uh, to, to gift stores. And typically those suppliers 
by insurance. And what they're insuring against is the possibility that the firm that they are shipping to ends up going bankrupt, doesn't pay them off. So, you know, you've shipped all these clothes to the boutique, the boutique unfortunately goes bankrupt and you're stuck, you don't get paid. So if you have insurance, though, the insurance will step in. But apparently insurance companies in the pandemic have become reluctant to offer that insurance unless you, the supplier, are selling to a large company. So if you're selling to Walmart, no problem. It's cheap to get insurance against Walmart going bankrupt. But if you want to ship you know, five crates of, uh, of maple syrup to Hubbard's House of Pancakes in Manhattan, you may not be able to get that insurance because given in the pandemic, we've had a, just a wave of bankruptcies of smaller firms. So it's another way in which smaller firms can be handicapped because if I, the syrup manufacturer, can't get insurance when I ship to the, the small restaurant, either I have to take on the risk myself. So if in fact the restaurant goes bankrupt, then uh, I'm stuck. Or the restaurant has trouble getting the supplies that they wouldn't have trouble if they were, you know, the International House of Pancakes uh, is, is less likely to go bankrupt. So I think that's one of the ways in which, one of the many ways in which smaller firms have been struggling at a time when some of the bigger firms that are represented on the stock market have been doing pretty well. There is a related question I thought we could talk about, which has been much in the news. Restaurants, of course, have been particularly hard hit by the pandemic. Right, if you're Domino's, you're doing fine. But restaurants that rely on table service have, have been hurting. As you know, Glenn, New York City is uh, going to allow indoor dining to resume at the end of September, but only at 25% of capacity. And that similar restrictions are on in many cities across the country. So suppose you own a restaurant. There you are. You've got your Hubbard's uh, House of Pancakes. And with only 25% capacity, you're losing money. How would you decide whether you should keep operating or shut down? Well, you know, it's a great question, Tony. And it's a very live one for many small businesses. It's an important to as well realize how significant restaurants and other local services businesses are for the economy. I know a lot of people think about the economy as manufacturing, but you know, these service businesses are very important. And unlike the seller of a durable good, like a manufactured good, if you can't open your restaurant or you're closed for a while, it's not that people eat two dinners every night when you reopen, that's just lost uh, sales forever. So restaurants and businesses like that have been very vulnerable. I think there's a real naivete for political type saying, well, how about 25% capacity? Because think about it, when a business reopens, I'm going to pay my rent, uh, utilities, the raw materials for food, the labor in terms of chefs and waiters uh, in a restaurant. Uh, I'm not going to get the revenue to cover my costs. So as students know from thinking about economics, the question is a short run or a long run decision. And in the short run, you know, if I really can cover my variable costs, I might try to stay open and see how it goes. But in the long, medium to longer run, if, if I can't cover the cost of, of my entire cost of running the restaurant, I just can't stay open. And I, I think what a lot of businesses are wondering is, what's the length of this 25%? If, if the 25% is for 
a few weeks, then maybe restaurants make the decision, okay, I'll open, I can cover some costs. But if they think it's going to last for a very long time, they may just not open at all. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, those are, are very good points. It's, uh, as we talk about in the book, and as you mentioned, uh, as long as you can cover your variable costs, so you can pay the servers and cover the cost of your food and so on, then you'll lose less money by being open because you at least have something to pay towards your rent and uh, other costs that are fixed. Maybe you borrowed money to, uh, if you're a restaurant, to install ovens and things. So you lose less money operating than you would if you were closed. But over the long run, that's not sustainable. At some point, you've got to cover all of your costs or you go out of business. And it, it, it's a tricky matter for a lot of uh, restaurants because I know somebody who, who owns a restaurant and he says that even though he is losing money and is barely covering his variable costs, sometimes some weeks he does, some weeks he doesn't, He's a little bit afraid that if he shuts down for a while, that some of his neighborhood customers will find another restaurant. And the people who have been coming to his place will say, well, you know, you were closed there for six weeks and we found a few blocks away a place that turns out we like just as well. So that's another, another complication. I was actually reading uh, the Walt Disney Company's earnings call from uh, last month. And as you know, every quarter as, as publicly traded corporations like Disney announce their earnings, they have these so-called earnings calls in which financial analysts can call in and they can question the corporation's managers. And one of the things that I found very interesting is that a couple of these analysts were concerned that Disney was, had reopened Walt Disney World, but at a much reduced capacity and not nearly as many uh, people were buying tickets and coming into the parks and buying food in the restaurants and whatever. And the analyst was questioning, well, you know, you're actually losing more by being open than uh, by being closed. And I was very pleased to hear the reply from their chief financial officer. And I, I wrote down what she said. She said, we would not be opening a park unless we believed we could generate revenue that exceeded the variable costs. I thought that's a God perfect, <laughs> a perfect principles of economics answer yes, to the question. Yes, yes, we should definitely use that. Definitely. Yeah. So, essentially, what you were saying is that they're getting enough from the revenue from the people who are there to cover the costs of the the people who are um, running the rides and so on, and whatever electricity it takes to run the rides. Uh, so even though they're not covering their fixed costs, they can go on at least for a while like that. Okay, there's, there's uh, another question that a lot of people have been talking about lately, and that is that there are certainly some economists and some policymakers who are worried that although the recovery from the worst of the recession has been relatively rapid, we've seen employment come back, it looks like we're going to see a big increase in real GDP for the the current quarter. But there are some indications here and there that the recovery might be slowing down. And some people think Congress needs to apply another dose of fiscal policy, maybe by expanding unemployment benefits, providing money for schools and childcare, or maybe giving aid to state and local governments that have seen uh, their tax revenues fall and have been laying off some of their workers. 
So far, though, Congress appears deadlocked in coming up with uh, any new plan for increased spending or, or lower taxes. Do you think that additional fiscal policy is needed? It's an excellent question. I think the answer is yes. Uh, part of the problem in Washington seems to be a fixation on numbers. Should it be this much or this much? As opposed to stepping back and going back to Econ 101 and say, what are we trying to do? So as you mentioned in the recovery, we are seeing a recovery in the job market and in output. But in some sense, we're getting the low-hanging fruit. So some people are going back to the job they used to have. Some firms find it easy to restart. But now we're in the level of people who have to change jobs or firms that are having more difficulty. I think that's something that does require additional support, maybe assistance for small and mid-sized businesses as they retool. Maybe it's training and other support for workers who now have to find a new job because it's not going to be the same job that they used to have. And states, uh, as you mentioned, are in a desperate fiscal situation and there's probably a pretty, pretty high fiscal multiplier on aids to, aid to states right now. So I do think a fiscal plan makes sense. You know, I'm certainly not a politician. I don't know whether that logic is a chance in Washington, but I think maybe thinking in those Econ 101 terms rather than just on size matters. If we fail to do it, and I'm right about the need for it, we could slip back and we could see the economy slip back from the recovery into recession. And that's not just unfortunate as a matter of economics, it's unfortunate for millions of people who need a job or are trying to work in a small or mid-sized firm. So we, we need to get this right. Those are good points. Yeah, I know that some people are concerned that during the period of the, the shutdown and the period in which people were getting $600 unemployment payment on top of what the state would normally pay, that they built up some reserves. And uh, if you look at, for instance, the money people have in checking accounts has really soared. People have a lot of savings, but some people are a little bit worried that what, we're, what we've seen in the recovery so far is people kind of drawing down those savings and buying things. And um, because certain parts of retail, particularly online. I mean, Amazon has been doing tremendous business and they uh, have trouble keeping up with people's demand. But what happens when they draw down those, those savings, particularly if they still have not yet found employment? And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with respect to retail. I mean, are we going to see a contraction in the restaurant business, particularly maybe smaller restaurants that uh, the people who own them have said, you know, I, this is just not what I should be doing because who knows if there's another pandemic or some other problem, this is not the place I should be putting my life savings. Do we see the sort of change in the mix of products that require people to, as you say, move from one job to another? And in that situation, people typically need some funding to get them through a period in which they are going through that retraining and they're searching around to find another job. Okay, maybe we can turn, since we're on policy, there was an interesting development in monetary policy, where, as you know, back in 2018, uh, the Fed announced that it was going to review its monetary policy strategy. A couple of weeks ago, they announced the results of that review. 
And Fed Chair Jerome Powell gave a, a, a talk at the, it would have been, he would have physically been in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where they have a, an annual conference sponsored by the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, but he, he gave it remotely and he, he talked about this. And I, I want to get your thoughts because there, I had a couple of takeaways from reading what the Fed said and listening to Chair Powell, but I'm not sure that I've got it exactly right. The first takeaway I got from it was that in assessing the state of the labor market, right, because we know the Fed has a dual mandate from Congress that they're supposed to be concerned with price stability and high employment. So it seems to be the case that Powell said that in assessing the state of the, the labor market, the Fed will pay less attention than it has in the past to estimates estimates of what economists call the natural rate of unemployment, sometimes known as U-star in, uh, in Fed speak. And that's the unemployment rate below which inflation typically accelerates. So for many years, at least since the 1970s, there's been this concern that if the Fed were to, through expansionary policies, drive the unemployment rate too low, it could set off an increase in inflation. So the Fed has kept an eye on the natural rate of unemployment. And as I understand it, Powell seems to be saying that they're going to not look at any one particular measure of the state of the labor market anymore. The other takeaway that I got from it was that the Fed for some years has had an inflation target of 2%. So they're trying to keep the inflation rate at 2%. They've typically fallen below that during the the period that they've had that in place. So they're going to switch to an average inflation target of 2%, meaning that sometimes they might have 1%, but sometimes they might have 3%. So on average, they'd be hitting 2%. That seems like a subtle shift, but potentially it's an important one. So what do you think of the, the Fed's new monetary policy strategy? Well, I think you're right, Tony, that uh, Chair Powell's remarks were very important, and I think you got the two big points exactly right. I think where the Fed was coming from was, if you think about Phillips Curves models, like we talk about in the book, they're saying that we're going to put less weight on uh, expectations models that might determine inflation that use the natural rate of unemployment, because we don't really know what the natural rate of unemployment is. So there's a, a view that, well, maybe we should wait and see inflation coming more close rather than cutting off uh, employment too soon. That's a lesson the Fed believes it could draw from its experience since the financial crisis, where arguably it has, has undershot its inflation target and not performed very well. So that leads to the average inflation target idea. Some economists uh, have said, well, maybe you should try to target the price level, which would help you make up loss gains. That's a little hard to talk about with the public. And so the Fed's average inflation target may be a compromise. I worry a little though. It's like saying I'm in a high jump match uh, and I didn't clear this bar. So now let me raise it and try to clear that one. You know, <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you struggled to hit yeah. 2%, why should, you, why should I believe you could hit two and a half or three? But nonetheless, I think it's an important pivot and signal for the Fed. It's not risk-free, though. It sounds kind of eerily reminiscent of some monetary ideas in the 1960s that also were a period of a loose fiscal policy and this view of just waiting for inflation. And boy, did inflation come. So I, 
I think it's important. I think it's a real learning by the Fed. I get a lot of kudos for my former colleague, Rich Clarida, who led up the study effort. But I think we have to wait and see. You make an interesting point in looking at the history of this, because I was thinking the other day that if you think about the Fed's dual mandate, they're supposed to have high employment, low unemployment, and stable prices, which they've interpreted as meaning 2% inflation per year. They, in practice, often have to emphasize one or the other. So you could say in the early days after World War II, the 1950s, early 1960s, the Great Depression loomed very large in the minds of, I think, Fed policymakers. We had this terrible period of very high unemployment. And so I think that they and, and Congress were expecting that the Fed would do what it could to avoid anything that remotely resembled a return to those high levels of unemployment. And yet, inflation was still one of their, their two important policy goals, but it kind of took a back seat. And then, as you mentioned, during the late 1960s, as they ended up allowing the money supply to grow very rapidly, in part to keep interest rates low in the face of big increase in government spending for the Great Society programs, you know, Medicare and, and um, aid to families with dependent children, and also to fight the war in Vietnam, as they tried to avoid having that increase in government spending cause interest rates to rise, they accelerated the growth of the money supply. And we saw a big inflation that lasted through the 70s. And then we have Paul Volcker coming in in the late 70s as the, the Fed chair. And you can see a shift in emphasis then because inflation becomes the big problem. And we're now 40 years beyond the Great Depression. Unemployment is less, less of the, the key issue that they're looking at. And you can make an argument that we kind of had remained in that mode of the, um, the Fed targeting inflation because the high inflation rates of the 70s and early 80s were so disruptive to the economy that that seemed like the best thing the Fed could do. And we also know that the Fed in the long run has better ability to affect inflation than it does unemployment. So one way I was thinking that we could interpret what the Fed is telling us now, and I wanted to see whether you think this makes any sense, is that maybe we're seeing another one of these kind of grand reorientations that after many years of inflation being the part of the dual mandate that they're focusing on, maybe what Jerome Powell is signaling to us is, well, you know, we haven't really had a problem with inflation for quite a long time, but unemployment maybe is what we should be focusing on. And maybe that um, explains the discussion that he has about no longer paying much attention to the natural rate of unemployment. Does that seem to make sense? I think it does. I think we are seeing a pivot. I just think it's not risk-free. So to the extent that the, there are really two employment problems in the country. One is the cyclical, very high uh, rate of unemployment right now we have because of the downturn associated with the pandemic. But there's also underlying structural problems in the economy, and monetary policy is not really able to fix those. And even on the cyclical part, it's not obvious, going back to our earlier discussion, that better fiscal policy wouldn't be the answer. So kudos to the Fed for stepping up and, and rethinking, but you know, it's not clear to me that it's time to change the channel. Thanks, Glenn. A reminder to our listeners that this podcast is available on iTunes. If you would like, you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. Please also keep checking our blog at hubbardobrieneconomics.com, 
where we periodically post new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien Economics podcast. We'll see you next time.